Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, Steezy.Digital and RealNurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to Lockbox. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm here today with Barry Saywitz. Thank you so much for being with us, Barry. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So why don't you tell our listeners first who you are and where you're from? Well, my name is Barry Saywitz. I own a commercial real estate uh, brokerage investment and consulting firm. Uh, we're headquartered in Newport Beach, California. The firm is called the Saywitz Company. I named it so I wouldn't forget where I worked. And then uh, we also have an investment uh, division as well, Saywitz Properties, which uh, owns, manages, and maintains and buys commercial properties, apartment buildings, office buildings throughout Southern California as well. Originally from, yeah, so I'm originally from uh, Chicago, but I've lived here in Southern California for as long, long enough to, to be native and, and see things really grow and boom and change for the good and the bad. And, uh, you know, we'll roll with the punches in today's environment and hopefully, you know, get out of it as quickly as we can in terms of the issues relating to the pandemic. Right. Absolutely. So what got you into real estate? Did you start in Chicago or did you start it out here? Yeah, I started after, while I was in college, I got my real estate license and then I did an internship uh, with a stock brokerage company and also with a commercial real estate brokerage company. And that was in the late 80s when everything was booming and it was all rosy. And so those were the two careers I looked at. The stockbrokers had to get up really early in the morning. And at the time I was not a morning person. And so I leaned towards the commercial real estate. And both careers and, and both industries were really booming at the time. And then by the time I graduated college, I left and took a uh, job, which I thought was uh, uh, not as fruitful from a financial standpoint, but it was a tennis and golf pro at Club Med in the Bahamas, but it had other benefits. And then I decided I would come back and actually make a living and start my career. And so I moved to Newport Beach in October of 1989 and started in commercial real estate. And the real estate market crashed in November of 1989, about two, three weeks after I started. So it was a very difficult time to actually try and learn the market with a lot of changes going on and, and not really knowing what I was doing. But that was the timing of it. So, uh, And here I am. I've now seen multiple ups and downs of the economy and the real estate market and uh, still standing. And so still plugging away. That's right. And speaking of ups and downs, you know, how has the Savitz company managed to be, you know, profitable and survive during COVID? I mean, what yeah, strategies I mean are you guys, you know, recommending to clients as a result of the pandemic? It's been a challenge. I mean, there's no question. So on the commercial side of things, we're dealing with presidents, owners, CEOs of companies as to their real estate. And typically, if you're buying a building or you're signing a long-term lease, those are long-term commitments for your company. It's very hard to do that when you're shut down and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and uh, all the, the what-ifs and, and things change on a daily basis. So the initial pullback for everyone is to just stop and not do anything and take a pause. And then that short-term pause got longer and longer, and it's hard for people to make decisions. And so a lot of the transactions that we had, and we, we talked to other folks at other firms, I mean, I would tell you 90% of all the transactions we were working on either died a horrible death or just got stuck on indefinite hold. And now the ones that have life to them are coming back and people you know, need to move on and, and can see some light at the end of the tunnel and are now 
making longer term decisions. But, you know, it, both landlord and tenant, both seller and buyer, if they can't see the future, it's very hard to have anybody try and uh, make decisions based on that. Got and, it. Got and, it. So, and I just, I would add just on the apartment side of things, been its own host of challenges with eviction moratorium, with the perception, I guess, that the tenants don't have to pay their rent, which is not true. And then trying to get people to A, pay their rent when they have it, when they read on the internet, they think they don't have to. And then other people that are truly struggling, trying to work through those issues with them in terms of whether it's payment plans or partial payments, or if they really don't have the funds, what are the options available to both sides of the stick. So I'm a lot more challenging and uh, a lot more handholding in today's environment uh, than before, for sure. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I mean, there was a, a commercial building right across from where I am in Huntington Beach, and there was this little coffee shop called Sit Stay Cafe. You could just dog friendly. The entire community loved it. And the owner of that building in particular, when her lease came up for renewal during COVID, he said, I need you to lock in an eight-year lease at a rent increase. And it basically just drove out like multiple small businesses that the community loved. And now it's been, you know, replaced with a different coffee shop and all that. But during COVID, it was so interesting to see the different stipulations that certain owners were putting in place and they're trying to protect themselves. And it was just a really interesting time for both residential and commercial real estate. Yeah. Uh, another and, question. And, Go ahead. I was just going to say it's it's for small business owners, it, it's a challenge. And the commercial rental market over the past several years has continued to increase. So if you'd signed a five-year lease four years ago and your lease was coming up, you might have a well below market rent. And so when the landlord goes to renew your lease, he's trying to get you closer to the market. And you perceive that as you're kicking me when I'm down. The landlord says, look, I can just rent it to anybody else for more money. And if right. you really are struggling, do I really want to make a deal with you? If you're really struggling, maybe I should just go get someone else. And, and so as a landlord myself, I put that hat on as well, as much as you want to work with your own tenants and, and do the best you can. And, and certainly it's the path, uh, path of least resistance for the landlord. At the same time, you have to recognize it, at some point, this is not going to work. And so the perception is, hey, the economy stinks. I, I should be getting a deal. And that's a not everybody gets a deal. And so it's, it is a challenge. And from a landlord's perspective, if he wants to go back and refinance the property, or he has bank or investors or partners to answer to, you, you need to keep the building full or get it full if it's not full. And if you're trying to take advantage of today's low interest rates, then you need to capitalize on the market rent. And the tenant doesn't has a different set of, <laughs> of priorities. priorities. So you have a disconnect, right? So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're looking at investments like that from your stockbroker background, do you look at it as a minimum yield you're looking at with any given property? I mean, even if you don't have investors to answer to, you know, if you set rent five years ago and that's coming up and, you know, rents have gone up since then, there's a, a yield that you're missing out on. It's the opportunity cost of, of that investment underperforming as a landlord. So as you mentioned, you know, there is that back and forth of working with tenants, you know, being kind and all that. But at the end of the day, this is business. You do own the property. You do have, you know, responsibility to either, you know, your own yield based on the return on that investment or to your investors. So do you look at it in that way? 
Yeah. So fortunately, we I don't have any investors. I am the investor. But if you have other, I mean, I have lenders and just looking at a piece of paper, our goal as when I put my landlord hat on is not to capitalize on every last penny and, and take advantage right. of the tenant. At the same time, if you purchased the property correctly, you should be getting a decent return. But at the same time, I as the landlord, no landlord signed up to not get rent and have to chase their tenant every month. And it's taxing for both landlord and tenant who is continuing to struggle 15 months into it. And the landlord who says, I've been working with you for 15 months, at some point you got to get back on your feet or I got to go find someone else. So we've done a lot for clients of ours on the brokerage side where we've done one or two year extensions to just, uh, for lack of a better word, kick the can or just buy both parties some time. And now those one or two year leases are either up or coming up and now you got to go deal with it for real. And so at some point you've got to look in the mirror and go to, you know, does this model make sense for me as a landlord and can I pay the rent as a tenant? And those are difficult conversations because everybody's looking at yesterday and, and that's not the case. You have to look forward. Right. That makes sense. So I'd like a little clarity. So the Saywitz company exclusively represents tenants and users of commercial real estate. So how is that different from the typical real estate brokerage company? Yeah. So like a typical general real estate brokerage company might represent the landlord and you'd see their sign out on the street driving by. They might do an investment deal where they represent a seller or a buyer or sublease space, or if they had a tenant, they would go find them space. What our company does and what it's always done is just represent tenants or users of commercial real estate. And, and what that means is if a guy wants to go rent a commercial space, whether that's office, industrial, medical, retail, then we will help them find the space. We will help negotiate with the landlord or the broker who is on the landlord side and try and get them the best deal and create as much leverage as possible. And we don't have a conflict of interest between the landlord. I don't care if my client picks bills building A, building B, building C, our goal is to get them the best deal and provide service. And so unlike if you call the guy's name is who's on the sign, some people have the belief that, hey, if I call the sign and I deal directly with the guy who's on the sign, he'll make me a better deal because I don't have a broker. And the reality of it is the guy whose name is on the sign represents the landlord. He's trying to get them the most amount of money and he's trying to get you in the building. And so I don't want to say those people are unethical because it's not really the case, but there's a conflict of interest, clearly. You would not use somebody else's attorney to negotiate a business deal for you. You would not negotiate your divorce settlement and use your spouse's attorney. You need your own representation. And so that's what we provide is unbiased expertise. Number one, I'd like to believe that we do it better because we specialize in just representing the tenant than someone who does a jack of all trades. And then secondly, there is no conflict of interest. And so part of it is leverage and an environment like you have today where there's a pandemic and there's a window of opportunity before the economy really does fully recover to take advantage of that. And then secondly, here in Southern California, the real estate markets are still pretty tight. The prices are still pretty high. If you back up to pre-pandemic times, all of the markets in all of the sectors, office, industrial, medical, were all at sort of all-time highs. And so now you're in an issue of having difficulty finding space and trying to negotiate an aggressive set of terms. 
and you need the help. And on top of that, our fee is paid for by the landlord or the seller. So no different concept than if you were buying or selling a house and in right. residential, the seller pays the fees. It doesn't add any money to the transaction and the broker split the fees. So in the commercial side of things, it's the same, and whether it's a lease or a purchase. So it's not adding any money to the transaction and you've got professional expertise to help you. Yeah, that's very interesting. So at this point in the Saywitz company's career, you mean you've been doing this for, for you mentioned about 30 years, is that right? Yeah, as long as I can most, remember. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is most of your business from referral nowadays? You know, what's your percentage of, of referral as opposed to new business? Yeah, well, it certainly referral business is, is a, a big source of business for us and it's networking and it's about who you know and it's about trust and it's about relationships. And so for myself and also for the other key players in the firm, you know, we encourage networking, we encourage uh, community involvement uh, for many reasons. And then by doing that, you're able to meet people in, in the community who, if there's an opportunity to do business, then you have a relationship that you've forged outside of just a phone call. At the same time, we have relationships with movers, with telecommunication companies, with architects, other industry segments that are associated with the commercial real estate world. And we refer business back and forth to those guys in both directions. But at the same time, we also have our own in-house marketing department where we are actively and aggressively and on a daily basis contacting decision makers and, and business owners to talk to them about what their situation is because a lot of them, especially during the pandemic, have all sorts of issues to deal with and don't really focus on the real estate or don't know that there is help out there that for people who just represent tenants. And so a lot of times they'll just call up the landlord and say, what would you do for me? And the problem with that is you start up here and now you have to try and chip away at it as opposed to if the landlord knew you had professional representation, you would probably start at a different place and you'd certainly end up you know, someplace better than doing it on your own. And that's not to say that the president of a company isn't a good negotiator in his own right. It's just a function of leverage and maximizing your time in the day. And if it wasn't costing you anything out of pocket, why wouldn't you get the free advice? And so we do both, right? We actively market, we actively are outbound, and we actively are looking for referral business and also repeat customers as well, right? So people that we have done leases for or help them buy buildings, now they're calling and saying either A, I need help, or B, I need more or different space. And so that's a big source of it as well. Right. That makes sense. And if you don't mind, I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into that. So I know on the commercial side, a lot of times in-house marketing will mean a lot of outbound phone calls, right? Yes. Dialing, um, using either previous customer lists, uh, investor lists, owner lists from different types of property data sources and basically just hitting the phones. And so, you know, is that the primary strategy or, you know, are you also using inbound different types of digital marketing strategies? Um, I'd love to dive a little bit deeper for our listeners and shed a little light on that. Yeah. I mean, look, in the commercial real estate world, we've been doing it long enough. There is uh, no magic. People, uh, as a business owner myself, I get flyers and junk mail all the time. I get inbound uh, cold calls for various different things all the time. And so it's a difficult thing to do. And now you get phishing emails and marketing emails and, hey, do you have 10 minutes for a phone call? So as a business owner, you've got to sift through those things. What I found is 
commercial real estate, as much as the world is much more technology and internet driven today than it was years ago, the fact of the matter is you're talking about a, a significant financial commitment for the company. You're talking about a long-term commitment that will affect your company for years to come. If you're signing a five or a 10-year lease or you're buying a building, this is not something you make a mistake, you're going to pay for it. And it's, it's real money. So for us on the outbound calls, we have a database that we have cultivated, refined, and continue to work at and expand for the past 20 years. And so there are certain geographical areas that we target, whether that's, you know, from, I'll call it LAX down to the Mexican border and out to the Inland Empire. There are certain market segments that we target, which would be office, industrial, high-end retail, uh, medical, and flex space. And then there are certain sizes of companies as well that make sense for us and in certain industries. So if we've done a bunch of work in the aerospace industry or we've done a bunch of work for a certain type of manufacturing company, then we will target other competitors or companies in that industry because it makes sense. Got it. And you're niching down within your own database that you've cultivated over, over years. And it seems like there's an analysis process where you're looking at where the ROI or the fruits of those labors have come from, and then you're doubling down in those areas, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, and, and we try to on a daily basis, and that you know that is an ongoing challenge, and that is the issue. In part, it's a numbers thing, but you know, when when we talk to our PR folks or advertising people that approach us, not everyone is a client of ours, and not everyone within a company organization is in a decision making capacity. So there may only be one or two individuals within the company that we have to talk to and get in front of. And so blasting out e-blasts or taking an ad out in the newspaper, while it promotes name recognition, it's, it's not necessarily reaching our target market. And so we grapple with that all the time in terms of how do we make good use of our time, our resources, our money in, in terms of marketing. And, uh, you know, that's, whoops, uh, that is a, uh, this is, this is an ongoing challenge, but the fact of the matter is we have been doing it somewhat old school since I started when there wasn't databases and there wasn't mass emails and it's worked. And so there's nothing that substitutes uh, having a good conversation or good in meeting a person with people. Now you dump the pandemic on top of it and people don't want to take a physical meeting. So they're doing zoom meetings or you're doing conference calls and you have to make the best of that. Uh, we have clients that we started doing work for at the beginning of the pandemic that I've never met. You know, I've only seen them uh, on a zoom call and talked to them on the phone, which it seems weird to me, but that's, you know, that's how it goes. And you just got to make yeah. the best of what you got. It's more and more common nowadays, even in the high touch real estate space that, you know, people are doing virtual showings, you know, FaceTiming properties and, you know, sending videos and of course, you know, online virtual tours, all that stuff is so much more popular nowadays with residential. I'm sure that, you know, with commercial, it's different because as you mentioned, you know, in a lot of cases, especially if you're talking to potential tenants, you know, this is a business that would move in there. They'd have, you know, long-term leases. I'm really curious on the commercial brokerage side. So not necessarily the tenant representation, but on the commercial brokerage side, and you've been doing this a long time. And I would love to know the single most important action that you've taken on a daily basis that's attributed most to your success. Because that's what this podcast is all about. It's about action items for success. And for someone who's built multiple real estate companies over a 30 year period there, I would love to see the common thread of, you know, really consistent daily action. I mean, even the golf pro, the tennis pro that takes such dedication. You know, I golf myself and I started out in baseball and I've had to adjust my swing to golf and it's really challenging. 
challenging. <laughs> this weekend, I'm going out to Phoenix to play, you know, three rounds, three days straight. And, uh, you know, I'm worried about the guys I'm going to play with because they're pretty good. And, and so that even that is super challenging. So, yeah. you know, back, back to that question is like, you know, what's been the single most important action throughout your life that's attributed most to your success? Yeah, I don't know that there's a single action, but I guess you have to have a mentality. And I tell the folks that work for me, you have to have a plan, right? I tell my son all the time, right? But whatever you're doing, have a plan for the day, have a plan for the week. You can't control what other people do. You can't control other things around you and you can't control everything. But if you have a plan, you can try and execute your plan and you may need to adjust your plan, likely will, uh, refine your plan, get a new plan, but have a plan. And so when you get in the office in the morning, have a list of things to do, have things that you're trying to accomplish during the day, even if they're small things, so that when you leave at the end of the day, you feel like you've taken a couple of steps forward and you've accomplished something. And whether that puts money in your pocket directly, if that's the end game, may not be the case, but it may make you feel better about what you've done. And if you do that on a daily basis, you'll look back in a week or in a month and see, hey, I've really made some progress. And whether that applies to refining your skill, whatever that skill is, if it's talking on the phone, if it's working on a deal, if it's by putting, you have to practice and you have to continue to work at it. At the same time, you have to have somewhat of a game plan of what you're trying to do. And so, you know, for us, we've stuck to the plan. We've modified it over the years. There's also no substitute for hard work. And so, uh, I, you know, you don't need to work 18 hours a day, but you also get out of it what you put into it. So like in professional athlete or like a student or like a commercial real estate broker, if you put in four hours a day and another guy puts in eight hours a day, that guy's going to get an A in the class. That guy's going to sink his putt more than you. That guy's going to make more money than you. Right. So when we have people that work, you know, that are, uh, I don't want to say lazy, but not as motivated as others, or if you compare yourself to other competitors who don't work as hard, successful people usually get out what they put in. It's very hard to get lucky all the time, right? You might do it once or twice. You're not going to do it over and over again. And so yep. uh, I think, you know, to me, that is a very important lesson. And maybe I learned that from growing up in the Midwest where you have uh, maybe a little better work ethic in California. It's very easy to go to the beach and just blow things off or go surfing or go play golf because there's so many other things to do. And I'm not picking right. on Californians because I am one, but if you have a strong work ethic, if you have a focus, if you have a game plan, then you have a much better shot of being successful. And on top of that, if you can surround yourselves with other people that can give you good advice or help give you direction when things get difficult, that's going to help you that much more. And so, yeah. And so some of that I had and some of that I didn't and wish I had more. And so when there's younger guys who work for us, certainly try and help them as best we can to try and facilitate their growth and, and production. Yeah, that's fantastic. I learned long ago from my first direct sales position right out of high school, I became a Cutco rep and just faced immediate rejection, went 0 for 13, my first 13 appointments. And then by sticking with it and going to their personal development conferences, starting to read books and listen to tapes and listen to audios of top reps on, on sales calls, all of a sudden, you know, fast forward six years, I'm still there because I became top 1% sales rep and recruiter and sales manager in the company. <laughs> so yeah. it, it just comes down to, like you said, consistency, mentorship. Were you going to comment on that? Oh, you're absolutely right. Right. And then if there are things that you're doing that aren't really working, you've got to modify. You don't keep doing the same thing over and over again and getting a bad mm -hmm. result. So if you're slicing it to the right, every time off the tee, you got to try and fix it. You can't keep playing out of the woods. 
That's right. And then the analysis, I think, is where that comes in. Is like, you know, how often do you review and analyze? You know, I know that there's uh, in real estate, I think Gary Keller popularized the start, stop, continue method where, you know, every quarter, every year you look at what's working, what's not working and what you should, you know, start new, start, stop, continue. So do you have any type of method or, or a, a, a deadline? Like every quarter we do a review. Is there anything like that in place for you? Yeah, we do it on a quarterly basis and then we do it at year end. You know, the difficult thing in terms of being a commercial real estate broker, right? Like, so I am still a broker. I work on selected transactions in addition to running the business. But if you rewind, when I was only working on transactions during the day, you're trying to build a pipeline, you're trying to close transactions. Well, whether you're a residential broker or commercial broker, typically you are your own company within a company. You dig up the business, you get hired on the business, you work on the business, you close the transaction, you make some money, and then you start all over again. And so it's just a constant wheel. And on January 1st, you wake up every year with no income because you're starting over. And that's just part of the nature of the beast. And so if you have a pipeline or you have transactions in play, then you're really not waking up with zero because you have stuff that's still going to happen. If you aren't constantly building that and you just look at what's in front of you, once that stuff either closes or doesn't close, then I need to keep filling. And so it's constantly looking at what is that pipeline? It's constantly looking at making sure that you're closing the stuff that you're working on and making good use of your time. You don't want to work on 10 deals and close one. And then looking back and saying, hey, what could I have done better? And so we do that quarterly and then we do it at the end of the year and you know, try and adjust if we need to make changes or, or tweaks to what the program is. Right. Fill that pipeline. Lead generation. I did a study years ago. I basically sent out a survey on LinkedIn to thousands of real estate professionals, and that was across residential and commercial. And one of the questions was, what's the number one thing holding you back from not closing more transactions? And over 60% said, not having a consistent flow of qualified leads. Yeah. And I would tell you, for the people that are moderately to highly successful, it's not that. It's time. Because if you're not making good use of your time and you wind up working on deals that don't happen, then you've wasted the time instead of working on a deal that could have Mm. turned into money or more business. And so the issue then becomes, how do I make sure that I am getting qualified leads and that I'm making good use of my time following up on those leads? You may have a higher percentage of non-qualified leads, but if you're able to sift through those to get to the ones that are qualified, then there is your focus. And so, you know, I learned that, I guess, I don't want to say the hard way, but I learned that the practical way, which is when I first started in commercial real estate, the firm that I worked for that I ultimately bought, they told me, hey, you're going to be an expert on this part of town and this is your area. So have at it. You want to learn all the buildings and all the tenants and all the landlords. And so I drove up and down the streets and I said, hey, I'm going to learn every little nook and cranny. And it turned out that the area of town that they gave me was the cheapest rents with the dumpiest buildings with the smallest tenants. And it took me a while to figure out that it was the same amount of effort to work on a deal that would make me X amount of money versus one-tenth of X. And so if you're trying to make good use of your time, then you might as well work on bigger stuff. And everybody would love to hit a home run every time they get up to the plate, but you need singles and doubles. But at the same time, if you're working on smaller transactions, and I thought, oh, I'll just cut my teeth on the smaller ones and then I'll work my way up. And nobody told me that's a sort of a dumb way to do it. You might as well try and make some more money along the way. And so again, it's a question of having a good game plan 
having a smart plan for generating leads, for working on deals, for managing your time during the day. And whether that's having a partner that you each work on or specialize in the part of the business that you're good at. Some people are digging up, good at digging up stuff. Some people like to network and go to parties or socialize. Some people are good in front of the client and some people are good behind the scenes and some people are good on the phone. And so what we've done is we've built our company based on instead of the broker being all things to all people and being your own company and hiring a bunch of people to be their own company within a company, ours is set up more like a pyramid, right? And so we have research people, we have marketing people, we have brokers, we have admin staff, and everybody works on what their skill set is. And you'd love to be great at all pieces of it, but there's only so much time in the day. And so that's the way we implement it. I think that's different than most, if not all other brokerage companies. And I don't want to say it's better. It works for us. And that's what we do. Yeah, it makes sense. And, you know, some would call that vertically integrated. You're offering, you know, ancillary services and you're helping the entire process. You're allowing those within your company to specialize in different things. That's also key. You know, I'm very big on focusing on your genius zone. You know, focusing on the thing that you do best that comes effortless to you and then partnering or filling in the gaps on your team with the things that you're not good at and, and being aware of it. So great points there. I'm curious where you see the industry heading. You know, what are your five, 10 year projections? Of course, COVID has been a total anomaly that no one could have predicted. And on the residential side, it actually caused this huge shortage and then prices are so high right now. So I think no one really at the very beginning when a bunch of listings were pulled off in March, 2020, everyone was super fearful and like things paused. People easily could have thought things are going down. And then all of a sudden, bam, it takes off for another 12, 15 months. But as far as just the industry in general, technology, uh, you know, um, different types of companies that are attempting to come in and automate certain processes that brokers do, you know, I'm really curious what your five, 10 year projections are for the real estate industry as a whole. Yeah, well, that's a good question covers a lot of ground. I would tell you, certainly you will continue to see technology play a bigger, more expanded role. And, and the more access you have to it, the better off you are, whether that is virtual tours, whether that is virtual architecture that you can do real time. But at the same time, you are talking bricks and mortar, right? You are, you need to go feel it. You need to go touch it. So that aspect of it, I don't think is going to change at the end of the day. The short-term blip of the pandemic as it relates to demand and supply and people's long-term projections, if you fast forward 12 months, I think then you'll be past most of that. The real issue to me is what is going to happen to the economy as a whole, and these are bigger things without getting political, of what happens with China, what happens with international trade, what happens with corporate taxes, what happens with people's desire to be in Southern California or in California in general, or are they going to flee to other states because there's better tax structures or lower cost of living to be able to go to other places? And, and so those will all continue to remain factors, I think, that will drive things. But if you break it down, you have to take it in pieces. You look at the office market today, the office market today with the pandemic is in a, I don't want to call it a slump, but I mean, it's a problem because you have companies that are not utilizing their office space. You have people right. that are working from home. And the question still remains, will those people come back? Will some of them still work from home? Do people like working from home? I talk to people, some people love it. Some people are like, I can't wait to get back to the office. I got to get out of the house. So right. 
And if you don't have a fear of having to spread people out, then you can go back to the regular way things it was. And if not, you will have to have people spread out, which means you might need more space. Or if you have half your staff working from home or all your staff working half time from home, then you need less space. So the office market will be interesting to see what happens. It's not there yet. There's certainly a lull in it now. If you want to go get office space, if you want to renegotiate your lease today, that is the window of opportunity. Now you look at the industrial market and you say industrial uh, vacancy in Los Angeles is the lowest in the country. And it's 1% or 2%, depending upon who you ask. Orange County right behind it at two or three or 4%. And you have rates continuing to skyrocket because there's just a supply and demand issue. And you look back and go, hey, rents are almost twice what they were five years ago. How can you sustain that? And the answer is you're land constrained. And the more product you have coming in, the more people that you have in Southern California, the more demand you have for warehouse. And you have guys like Amazon and Walmart and third-party logistics companies gobbling up big chunks of space. And then it creates even less vacancy. And so you have the issue there. The retail, you know, who knows? Will restaurants come back? You know, every place that I go to eat seems like they raise their prices to try and pull themselves out. So will people go out to eat more or less based on increased prices? And then finding good help, right? So if you could stay at home and get the extra money from the government today, then why would you go back to work? You might as well go to the beach for the summer and get free money. At the same time, people who want to work and want a career, the longer you wait, the less jobs there will be because unemployment is continuing to go down. So I think there's a lot of of factors that will trail back to the real estate market. I would just say, and we tell our clients, I just think that you're going to pay more next year than you would have this year. So if you can make a decision, if you can pull the trigger, whatever that means, if you can make long-term decisions relative to your business on the commercial side, you should do that now while there's a blip in the market. Because if you rewind to pre-pandemic prices or pre-pandemic vacancies, then it was not a tenant's market. I mean, you didn't have a lot of leverage. And so it makes sense to take advantage of it. If you can't, and you just need to fight another day and reevaluate it, then you should continue to monitor it so that when you get to that point, you can actually you know, make an intelligent decision and not be reactionary. Yes. Makes sense. I mean, it's a common investing principle, right? When everyone's talking about it and you know, your, your plumber is telling you to get into a stock, that's when you sell. Right. So, and when there's blood in the streets and everyone's saying the sky is falling, that's when you buy. And so it's the same thing right now with real estate. Everyone's worried and this and that. And it's like, well, that's a great time to actually lock things in because interest rates are low. And, yeah. and especially for, as you mentioned, office space or not necessarily industrial, because you mentioned that's more, you know, really expensive right now, but there are opportunities in any market. And right now you've identified some great ones. And and look, if you want to buy and you have the means to be able to do that for your business and your business is going to occupy part or all of the building, the majority of the transactions that we've done over the last 12 months have been sales because interest rates are at an all-time low. You can lock it in. Financing is very attractive and you'd rather own it than pay the landlord a bunch of money. And so that gets back to, do I know how much space I'm going to need? And, you know, do I want to own versus I, I just I don't want to be the guy who owns the building. I'd rather just pay rent and not deal with it. So you have to implement your strategy. But, you know, you, if you compare that then to the apartment market, a completely different anomaly, which is you have an eviction moratorium, you have rent control in California, and you have apartment prices and cap rates at an all all-time high. 
and in part because financing is still readily available, in part because people are figuring that there's just a housing shortage, so they want to be in the uh, landlord in the apartment market, and there's limited inventory, and so stuff sells very quickly at really ridiculous prices. And then what we've seen on the apartment side of things is you're buying somebody else's property that either was fixed up very nicely and they want a really high number, or you have somebody who didn't do anything to their property and is selling you their older beat up property with low rents, with bad tenants and getting rid of their bag of dirt. And you get to come and clean it up which uh, is fine for us, except I just don't want to pay a premium for that. Uh, normally, you would pay a discount for that. And in a tight market, you wind up paying more than, than you really should. And you have to be very careful about how that goes as well. And so I think, as again, as time goes on, if there is a change in the economy, if you really start to see inflation, if you really start to see a pullback in prices, then you'll see the people who weren't sophisticated, who didn't plan ahead, they'll be the ones that have problems, which you know, feeds back to make sure you have good professional help, make sure you have sound advice, make sure you have a game plan, whether you're buying, whether you're leasing, whether you're the landlord or the tenant, you know, make a good decision. Don't just make a knee jerk and think I'm just going to buy and everything goes up forever. That is not how it works. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, we saw that in 08. I mean, can't over leverage, can't make emotional decisions. Got to make sure that you're in a good spot to where if it does go down, you can hold, you're good to go. And, you know, speaking of 2008, you know, a a tragic, sudden kind of thing, I'm curious what types of failures in your past would set you up for later success? Because watching this podcast or listening to it, you know, if someone is the first time they've ever heard from, you know, Barry Saywitz, they might think, oh, successful, everything was easy. Because, you know, they were listening to a 45-minute podcast of someone who built multiple companies over 30 years. But once you realize that there were probably a lot of stumbles, hurdles along the way, then it becomes a little bit more human and you can then sometimes shed light on something that you learned in that journey. So, you know, do you have like a favorite failure of yours? Yeah, no one likes to fail. And then certainly going back to 2008 makes me start to break out in a rash just talking about it. But in living through that time period, And being days away from filing bankruptcy, losing all my properties, having the company go out of business, not having money to pay payroll, and having to face all of those things is a lesson that you, you know, never leaves you. And then you just never want to be there again. And so in my wildest dreams, did I not imagine that a property that I would buy that would be 300 feet from the Pacific Ocean, that, you know, every lender that I talked to would tell me it's worth half of what it was the week before. And so it's hard to imagine that if you, if that's the case, then what happens? Or someone who owned a house in Palm Springs that was worth, you know, 30 cents on the dollar or whatever the case was, or that your tenants would show up, you know, and line up outside your door, turning in the keys saying, I can't pay the rent or, Hey, I'll renew my lease, but there's another place down the street. That's half the price. And so I'll just give you half of whatever I was paying before. Otherwise I'm going to leave. And so these are just tragic catastrophes. And then combine that with interest rates on the rise, interest-only loans that convert to fully amortizing. So your mortgage doubles and your rent gets dropped in half. That is a double kick in the shins. And then the lender tells you your property is only worth half. And if you want, I'll take it from you. Or if you want to give it back to me, I'm just, you know, I'm not going to give you any money for it. Your equity is just gone and then you're bleeding. And so that was a terrible time and it didn't end quickly and it didn't end well for a lot of people. And it was fortunate to get through that. 
And so knowing that hopefully that never happens again, but you just don't want to be over leveraged and you don't want to make a mistake and you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're relying on tomorrow's dollars to pay for today. And so I learned a lot of lessons through that one. I lost a lot of sleep and, um, you know, we'll try never to go back there again and look ahead. Right. Yeah. So your big takeaway there was just never be over leveraged, you know, never, like you said, well, I didn't think I was right. I mean, uh, some people who I know plenty of people lost their house or lost their investment house or lost their apartment building or their office building because they were over leveraged. And I didn't think I was over leveraged. And then the next thing you know, you wake up and, you know, somebody's telling you you're underwater. So those are hard things to do. And, and it makes you just dig deep. And people that are resilient, people that have a desire to succeed, you work through it, but it doesn't solve itself in a day. And you have many factors going on. So, you know, that gets back to your game plan and having a solid ground instead of just throwing things against the wall and hoping something sticks. Yep. Makes total sense. And, you know, I'm glad you were able to make it through it. You know, you said you're days away from some very tough decisions and you scraped things together, made it happen. Now, you know, over 10 years later, you know, what was your transaction volume last year for, for your, I guess, just the brokerage side? Because I don't know, really know how to quantify the tenant side. Yeah. I mean, I would tell you that on the commercial brokerage side, the transaction volume was down dramatically and uh, mm. things were slow and that we had people working out of their homes and it's very hard to make a deal. And everybody we talked to, I don't say everybody, but nine times out of 10, it's, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. Just call me back when this is over. And uh, last year? Yeah. Well, while everything was shut down, right? So I would tell you now, everybody's working as hard as they can, as fast as they can, because things are starting to come back. Transactions are starting to come back. And so for us, we might as well make hay while the sun is shining because it wasn't so easy before. And we'll take advantage of that. So I think I've talked to other folks at other brokerage companies that are still Hey, you know, we have an entire floor of an office building and, uh, you know, 150 people and staff and there's six people in the office. So you're not there yet, but people are, are doing the best they can with what they have and they're getting used to working from home or online and you're still trying to make deals. But the other thing I would say is that you still have a dichotomy of, of time. Time kills deals. Time makes deals. Deals either get done very quickly because both sides are motivated or they string out because somebody wants to grind or somebody can't make a decision. And so it just keeps dragging out. And there doesn't seem to be, at least at the moment, anything in the middle. It's either very quick or just strung out. And so I'd like to get back to some sense of normalcy where people have an expectation of what the market is. People have an expectation that if they ask a certain price, they will get close to that, but not exactly that or above that, right? So uh, it's very hard to gauge and manage expectations of parties in a transaction when you don't have a clear understanding of, of where it's going to end up at the end of the day. And so that also is just a function of the market. Yeah. And, and that makes total sense. So, you know, something that I am curious about, you know, is there an investment that you've made that was just like one of the best investments ever? And it could be non-monetary as well, but you know, does something come to mind where you're like, man, that was a great investment. You know, I don't know that there's one where there was like a home run where just, uh, you know, I killed it. I, there's certainly deals that I've done 
that early on in my career, I tried to buy things with as little out-of-pocket cash as possible. It's hard to do that in today's environment with the lending, but you know, to buy a piece of property, I did one of these online classes where it was no money down and trying to understand how you can actually buy something in California with no money down, which doesn't really apply to California real estate because it's so expensive. But I bought a property you know, down by the beach and really came up with very little down. I think at the end of the day, it cost me about $6,000. And that property is worth several million dollars today. And I'd wish I'd done more of that. And there's other deals that I passed on for, for a few thousand dollars because I either got irritated in the negotiation or uh, the other party did, or I just said, hey, forget it. And I could kick myself, you know, for doing that now. And, and you look back. So, you know, you can um, look back and say, hey, I should have done this. I should have done that. Sure. Uh, I'm fortunate that, you know, I, I bought our office building and I said, hey, you know, they want $100 a foot. When will it ever be more than $100 a foot? And now, you know, I have stuff selling for over $1,000 a foot or, you know, bought a place by the beach and I looked at one on the sand and it had no heat, no air, needed a new roof, uh, garage door falling off of it. And they wanted a million dollars. And I said, how could you buy a, a property for a million dollars? And it doesn't have any like of the guts of an actual home. Like who would buy that? Right. And right. That property today is probably 10 times that. And yeah, I'd shoot myself for thinking about why I didn't do it. But hindsight's 2020. You, you just yeah. got to focus on the deals that you you have. You know, try and make sound decisions. And then if you're in it for the long haul, right, you have to look at your strategy. Am I buying it? And then I'm going to fix it up and flip it. Am I buying it just hoping it's going to go up in value and it has no cash flow? Or am I buying it for the cash flow? And one of the things that we look at here, and that's not everybody, but it's got a cash flow. Right? I know that from 2008, the thing has to throw off cash unless you're just looking to sell it next week. And then I guess, you know, you just hope somebody will pay it. So different strokes for different folks and you just got to be cut. Timing's everything. Yeah, that makes total sense. I feel like for me, I say this a lot. Anytime you're looking at real estate today, it always seems like, oh my gosh, like how could it be that much? And today, 10 years ago, you know, or, or 20 years ago or 30 years ago is the same thing. You know, my parents bought our house in San Diego for like $180,000 <laughs> like that. It's more like 800,000 now. And so, you know, it's always for them back then it was a stretch. And so I feel like for the most part, it's always expensive, but you know, making it happen as long as it's a sound investment or you're going to live there or whatever it is over time with the supply and demand of Southern California real estate and land, it should go up, but once again, can't be over leveraged. Can't count on that. You can't count on it in the short term because things will fluctuate in the short term. A question I have regarding deals and just you know life in general, what's your process for evaluating what to say no to? Do you have any type of, of simple linear process for that? No, I mean, because deals aren't a simple yes or no. I mean, if it's it just doesn't pencil and there's not enough cash flow to reach a certain threshold, then we'll just okay. you need to be a diligent in saying no. And the question I'd like to, you know, be safe that we're going to spend a certain amount of money to buy the property. We're going to spend a certain amount of money to fix it up. And then at the end of the day, we're going to be in a reasonable range of return. And, and sometimes it's better and sometimes it's worse, but it's never grossly off. So, you know, for me, I try to stick to what we know and try and stick within the, the guidelines and not believe somebody else's assumptions. We get packages on properties all the time and the person selling the property or the listing broker will have all these assumptions in there. And a lot of times those just aren't correct. And so for the guy who's a novice, he needs to understand that and not get sucked into somebody else's 
you know, expectation or their marketing material, we have a pretty good handle on uh, the properties that we own. And what I've done over the years is buy stuff in certain neighborhoods. And then when I like the neighborhood and the property works well, then I try and buy other stuff either next door on the same block or the next block Mm. over. So a lot of the acquisitions that we're doing now at least certainly during the pandemic, you have people that are looking to sell and get out and are like, look, I can't deal with this or I need money or I just want to retire. This is a big headache or I want to sell it and go buy Amazon stock or whatever their strategy is. They want out. So for us, we're not going outside the model. We're buying stuff, but we're buying stuff in neighborhoods where we already own stuff. So there's no big real risk for it. And other people have different strategies, but that's ours. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So is there a question that I should have asked you or anything that you'd like to elaborate on from earlier? I think you covered a lot of ground. You know, I don't want to dwell too much on the pandemic side of things because I think people look back on this in six or 12 months and hopefully we'll say, oh yeah, yeah, we're moving forward. But, you know, real estate is a cycle. It does go up and it does go down. And whether it's the dot bomb or the recession in 2008 or a pandemic, those are things that affect what happens in the real estate market. And so you need to be able to adjust accordingly and not just look at one part of the cycle. And so if you're in it for the long haul and what I tell younger people that are getting into the businesses, as much as you would love gratification in one day or one month, that's just not the case. You have to look at it over a period of time and have a bigger perspective on. So love that great insight. And how can listeners contact you if they're interested in learning more or getting in touch or, you know, bringing you a deal or whatever it is? Yeah. So they can go to our website at saywits.com and there's all kinds of fluffy stuff and articles and videos and information about the company and the services we provide. Or they can call us at 949-930-7500. We are headquartered in Newport Beach. We have branch offices in San Diego. We do work throughout Southern California and are actively negotiating transactions in probably 20 or 25 states at any given time and have done business in all 50 states. So whatever the need is, whether it's big or medium, or smaller, whether it's East Coast or West Coast, we could certainly help. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate your time. Barry Saywitz, everyone. He Thanks. dropped some amazing knowledge, insight, and experience today. So really appreciate you being here. Yeah, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Best of luck to you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free ultimate real estate goal setting framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.